While you're waiting for the next episode of True Crime Fan Club, check out the Scary to Sleep podcast. It's really one of my favorites. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. Have you ever felt like you needed something a little darker than whale noises or counting sheep to unwind at the end of the day? Maybe you've realized horror itself can be a strange but relaxing escape from reality. Every week, I bring to you a myriad of bone-chilling tales from 19th century dusty tomes to modern up-and-coming authors to truer spooky tales like reddit mysteries and time slips, all accompanied by a gentle voice and ambient music and sounds so that you feel immersed and lost in your own personal horror story. You can find Scare You to Sleep exclusively on Spotify. So, grab some earbuds, a cozy corner, and join me, Shelby Scott, every Thursday, and let's get unsettled together. Now, go get some sleep. Sweet dreams. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Parasite or familial side is rare, although these types of cases get so much media, making them seem more common than they are. Most of these types of murders are committed by a single individual, and in many cases, the perpetrator completes suicide after murdering their family members. Today's case is a rare instance of having two perpetrators, both male, who did not complete suicide because they had plans to kill hundreds of people. Okay, on to the show. On July 22, 2015, a 911 call was placed to the Broken Arrow Police Department Communication Center. The call came in around 11.30 p.m. and appeared to be a young male asking for help. He told the dispatcher his family was being attacked. She asked for an address, which was mostly inaudible, then asked who was attacking them. He said, my brother, and she thought he said father. In the call that lasted less than two minutes, she tried to get information out of him, but he started screaming, no, Michael, and the caller said nothing else. The call was mapping from 705 or 709 East Magnolia Court and was coming from what appeared to be a disconnected phone. The 911 operator crosswalked the number and found it was registered to David Bever. The name was searched in the water department files to pinpoint the address to 709 East Magnolia, the residence of David and April Bever. The line also connected to the water records for the residence. The dispatcher tried to call the cell phone back, but most times just got the voicemail, except one time when someone picked up the phone but did not speak. Officers were dispatched at 11.33 p.m. and arrived on scene within seven minutes. They approached the front door and saw bloodstains on the front porch. Officers could hear someone faintly crying for help inside, 
so they made entry and found a 13-year-old female just inside the door. She was covered in blood and had severe abdominal wounds. Some of these wounds were so severe her internal organs were protruding out of her abdomen. Officers carefully carried her out of the house, unsure of whether her attacker or attackers were still present in the residence. Officers requested EMS to their scene within three minutes of their arrival. The teenage female was able to tell officers that her brother had attacked her and the rest of the family, but did not know where he or the other members of the family were. Officers quickly saw two other victims close to the teenager and requested additional officers on the scene. They advised they had not cleared the house, it was too large, and they needed assistance. When officers arrived and the house was cleared, there were a total of five dead. An unharmed toddler was found upstairs. The mother, April Bever, was found near the couch in the living room. David Bever was found close to his bedroom. Daniel Bever, 12 years old, was found in their father's office. The two younger children found in the downstairs bathroom near the entryway were Christopher Bever, 7 years old, and Victoria Bever, 5 years old. Officers found fresh footprints in the backyard, and a canine unit led them to Robert, 18 years old, and Michael Bever, 16 years old, hidden in thick brush. One of the dogs bit Michael in an attempt to subdue him. Robert was wearing blood-stained body armor when they were found. Michael was not. The brothers were taken into custody, and Robert was booked into Tulsa jail while Michael was taken to a local hospital for treatment of the dog bites. Photographs of Robert taken after he was arrested at the scene show him smirking. Once in custody, Robert gave a statement to investigators and admitted to the killings, but also implicated his younger brother, Michael. Michael admitted he stabbed one of their younger brothers and did his part to help Robert get to other siblings by screaming, let me in, he's going to kill me. During one statement, one of the brothers spontaneously uttered that they had plans for mass homicide on a thumb drive in one of the bedrooms at the home. Police officers also found there were several cameras throughout the home, three of which were in areas where victims were found. Police also located videos the Bever brothers had recorded and uploaded to YouTube. These had been done several years before, but demonstrated their interest in video games and Robert's need for an updated computer. A little over a week later, on July 31, 2015, the boys were charged with five counts of first-degree murder. Both boys were charged as adults, although Michael's attorney tried to get him charged as a juvenile. Michael's attorney argued that psychological and sociological studies had proven teens do not comprehend crimes the same way adults do. He argued this was unconstitutional, but a judge ruled that this was constitutional and he would be tried as an adult. However, Michael could not be given the death penalty. On August 3, 2015, the two brothers were arraigned via video, and a plea of not guilty was entered for them by the judge. The defense attorneys requested many of the documents to be sealed, and that no attorney be allowed to make a statement to the press. A hearing was held as to whether the audio of the 911 call would be released, and initially, only the transcript was released. Eventually, the audio was released to the public. The autopsy reports were soon made public to the media, 
and the results were horrific. April, their mom, had at least 48 sharp force injuries to her head, torso, and extremities. 18 of these were wounds in the head and neck, 13 in the torso, and 17 in her arms and hands. She also sustained blunt force trauma to her head and torso. David had been stabbed 28 times and also sustained blunt force trauma. 17 of those were in the torso, two were in the face and neck, and nine were in his left arm and hand. His injuries were very deep, puncturing a lung, the small bowel, the left kidney, and his carotid artery. Some of the wounds on both David and April were consistent with defensive wounds. Daniel Bever, who police believe made the 911 call that saved his two sisters' lives, was stabbed nine times in the back, shoulder, and chest. Christopher Bever sustained six stab wounds to his back, chest, lower leg, and shoulder. Victoria Bever had 18 stab wounds to her neck, chest, back, and upper arm. The brothers also revealed they intended to kill their youngest sister, identified as A.B. in the press and court documents, by cutting off her head. However, in the melee that followed the attempted murder of their first victim, they apparently forgot about her. Based on the evidence taken from the home, the murders were planned in advance. They purchased weapons, body armor, holsters, and a thousand pounds of ammunition to carry out their plans, all in order to be more famous than the Columbine shooters and the Aurora Theater shooter. Crystal, their oldest surviving sister, said the day of the murders was normal. She and Robert and two of their siblings went bowling. She also said Robert and Michael had been planning the murders for several months, and Michael had even asked her if she wanted to join. She told her mother she was concerned about their knives and body armor, but her mother just said, boys will be boys. The details of that evening came out as the days went on. The spree started just a little after 11 on July 22, 2015. Michael, Robert, Crystal, and their mother, April, were the only ones still awake. Michael and Robert were in their bedroom when Crystal came in to tell them that their mom said they needed to come do the dishes. They were putting on their body armor, and Crystal noticed they had several knives laying on the bed. When she walked in, Michael asked, Should we do it right now? And Robert replied, Yes. Michael told her to come over and look at something on his computer, and when she did, Robert walked behind her, put his hand over her mouth, and slit her throat. The brothers believed she would drop immediately, but she began screaming as Robert repeatedly stabbed her. She finally managed to get away and ran from the room screaming. She started for the front door, hoping to set off the alarm and hoping to find a cell phone along the way. She made it outside, triggering the alarm, but Michael disabled it and then ran outside to drag Crystal back in. Michael's bloody palm print was found on the inside of the front door, supporting the theory that Michael left it there when he closed the door. Robert then asked Michael where the others were, and Michael said they were hiding. This is when Michael told his younger sibling that Robert was trying to kill him, so they would let him in. When Michael walked in, according to his statement to police, he stabbed his brother Christopher Perry Bever and his sister Victoria Bever. Michael then went to his father's office where Daniel was hiding and used the same ruse as before to gain entry. Once Daniel opened the door, 
Michael said to Robert, he's all yours. As Robert stabbed him, Daniel cried, I love you. The two brothers decided to leave the home, and Robert tried to go out the garage door, but Michael warned him that was not a good idea because the cops might see them. As they were leaving, they realized Crystal was still alive and moving in a pool of blood. As they headed to the ravine behind their house, Michael removed his body armor and flung it the opposite way. He told Robert, now they'll go that way. Police found Robert's journal where he wrote about the plans to kill his family. He called Michael his fellow tactician and colleague in prep work and a sneaky bastard with a life preservation rig just like mine. He also wrote, I can't think of anyone I'd rather rampage with. On the day of the murders, he simply wrote, We're going to kill them tonight. Robert told investigators he had been planning on killing his parents since he was 13. He had worked at a local call center to earn money to pay for knives, body armor, ammunition, helmets, and guns. He found out he could purchase guns online and have them delivered to a local gun shop, so he purchased two Glocks and a shotgun. He also ordered 4,000 rounds of ammunition to be delivered to their home on July 23rd. The original plan called for the two brothers to cut up their family members and store them in tubs in the attic. They were going to create a video in front of the bodies to send to police, then another video without the bodies to send to the media. The whole plan went awry when Crystal didn't die immediately like they believed and when Daniel made the 911 call. Robert and Michael had planned on stealing the family car and driving across the country, killing multiple people in heavily populated areas as they went. Robert and Michael both told investigators they planned on killing five people in each location. Robert said that he believed killing more than one person would make him godlike. He said killing people was not a bad thing, and if he killed enough people, he would eventually kill someone who was not contributing to society. Robert purchased the firearms because his parents hated them. Robert had not counted on two things. First, he would need someone who was 21 to pick the guns up from the gun store. Two, the ammunition was going to weigh around 1,000 pounds, so transportation would be an issue. While the brothers were in the ravine, right before they were found by police, Robert told Michael, six out of seven isn't bad, referring to his past family members. Michael then said he believed Crystal was still alive, but had all this stuff hanging out of her, which caused Michael to start puking in the ravine. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. But BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ matters, grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential, 
And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. According to Robert, the kids were not really involved in any activities, although he was in a youth court program and in a bowling league for one year. A youth court program is where juveniles are judged and sentenced by other juveniles. Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, has one of these programs. He said it could be months before they left the house. Their father worked from home, and April was a stay-at-home mom who locked herself in the office most of the time. All of the children were homeschooled and Robert said they had to self-educate themselves. April found learning tools online, and the children had to participate. He claimed to have taught Michael third through fifth grade, but he was certain Michael had dyslexia, based on the way Michael wrote. Robert was the only one of the Bever children who went to school outside the home, and that was just preschool. He was molested and pulled out of the school. According to Robert, their father yelled at Michael for his speech impediment, which it appears Daniel also had. Their father, David, shook Robert one time for having a stutter and said, stop and don't talk until you can speak clearly. Robert and David were playing basketball in the backyard one time and the pair fell over each other. David threw a shoe at Robert's face and they never played basketball again. Robert also discussed two incidents where David physically attacked Michael by punching, shoving, and kicking him. Food was an odd thing in the Bever household. Robert said the kids ate a lot of ramen noodles and peanut butter sandwiches. April ate TV dinners mostly, whereas David ate grilled cheese, chicken, chips, and olives. He kept the chips put up so the kids couldn't eat them. The family was estranged from both sets of grandparents and any aunts or uncles. David and April told their children not to talk to strangers or tell anyone their names. Robert claimed they were paranoid and told the kids not to go near the windows so no one would see them. Robert alleged the body armor was purchased because he was into role-playing online and played more than 100 characters. Many of these characters were insane or were mass murderers. He said this was one reason he purchased knives. Some of them went with his costumes. Robert said their mother prayed for him as he was stabbing her, and his father asked why. Robert said because he had to, but his father said he didn't. In court, Robert said he lied to police during his interviews and that Michael did not participate in the killings. He only said that so Michael would get credit in case they got famous. During Michael's trial, He also told prosecutors he did not even remember what he told them during the previous day's testimony. He said, 
To be honest, you started yelling, and that made me nervous. So I just let out a loose stream of words. When he was asked if he thought that taking sole responsibility for the murders would help his brother, he said yes. Robert questioned investigators on how other mass murderers had carried their ammunition. In June 2016, Robert attempted suicide in his cell. He tied a sheet around his neck and his sleeping boat. A sleeping boat is a canoe-shaped plastic tub used as a solution for overcrowded jails. He propped the sleeping boat against the toilet so his head could hang. A jailer found him, and after being checked, he was moved to suicide watch. In September 2016, Robert took a plea deal, pleading guilty on five counts of first-degree murder and on one other count of assault with intent to kill. His sentence for each count, including the assault charge, was life in prison without the possibility of parole. The negotiation allowed Robert to avoid the death penalty. The prosecutor said it was difficult to negotiate such a deal based on the savagery of the murders, but he considered the two surviving sisters. He decided a death penalty would put Crystal in a position to tell her story repeatedly, causing her pain for many years. A plea of life without the possibility of parole would mean Robert would go to prison and there would be no appeals. On March 18, 2007, the Bever home, which had stood vacant since the murders, caught fire. The fire was reported around 3.30 in the morning. Firefighters had the blaze tamed around 4.30 a.m., but remained on site through daybreak to try to determine the cause of the fire. To some neighbors, the fire was reminiscent of the night of the murders. The home was at the center of a fundraising effort by city councilor Mike Lester, who wanted to purchase the home and property to turn the area into a memorial park called the Bever Family First Responder Memorial Garden. By April 9, 2017, enough money had been raised to create the memorial park with enough money left over to pay for the closing costs for the residents. When the house caught on fire the month before, there was no insurance on it, which led Fannie Mae to agree to sell it for $50,000. In February 2018, Gayla Adcock, a detective with the Broken Arrow Police Department, resigned amid allegations she mishandled evidence in the Bever homicide case. Gayla had supposedly taken items from the Bever residence and put them in her own locker, intending to take them to evidence, but she forgot. The items were collected from a local auction house and contained mostly electronics. The Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations worked with Gayla to attempt to retrieve the data from the electronics. A hard drive was later reported missing. The district attorney's office said the case was strong against Michael Bever and Gayla was not the lead investigator on the case, so it would not affect matters. In April 2018, when Michael Bever's trial was beginning, the court began with over 100 members in the jury pool. They eventually selected 11 women and three men to sit in on the jury. After several weeks of testimony, Michael Beffer was found guilty on five counts of first-degree murder. Michael was also very emotional during much of the testimony, particularly when the medical examiner detailed the wounds on all the victims. On May 18, 2018, Michael's jail journals were released to the public. These showed numerous crayon drawings, mostly of bloody scenes. The drawings were very childlike, but showed pools of blood. One page said, Once upon a time, 
there were two brothers named Michael and Robert. They hated their family, so they killed them. The end. Other pages showed multiple acts of suicide, and one page was dedicated to the Aurora, Colorado theater shooting, which read, My Hero. He also had a page dedicated to Jim Jones, the cult leader who led the 1979 mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. On May 30, 2018, the Broken Arrow community began to transform the site of the Bever home. At his sentencing hearing on July 24, 2018, Michael spoke to the judge. He told the judge, Every minute and every second, I've been thinking about what I could have done different and what kind of life I could have had with my family. Judge Sharon Holmes decided to delay the sentencing until August 9, 2018. The jury recommended Michael receive five life sentences with the possibility of parole, plus an additional 28 years for the attempted murder of his sister. Six of the jurors actually wrote Judge Holmes letters, asking her to respect their sentencing suggestion. Five jurors actually showed up to the sentencing hearing. Michael also said to the judge, I want to have a normal life someday. I don't understand what happened. I wake up in the middle of the night and look over thinking that I'm going to ask one of my little brothers a question. Even three years later, I can't believe that it actually happened. However, Tulsa County District Attorney Steve Kunzweiler noted Michael didn't ever say he was sorry. The judge eventually agreed to the sentences recommended by the jury, five counts of life with the possibility of parole to run consecutively with an additional 28 years for the attempted murder charge. On July 15, 2019, Robert Bever attempted to attack prison staff in the day room at the Joseph Harp Correctional Center. He was brandishing an eight-inch sharpened instrument and approached the staff from behind. One of the staff, who was a social services specialist, wrapped Robert in a bear hug and ordered him to drop the weapon. He complied and he was placed in restraints. In 2020, Robert was given three additional life sentences for the attack. Michael Bever appealed his sentence, but the State of Oklahoma Appeals Court upheld it. Crystal Bever and her younger sister were adopted by the same family. Social media affords us a very limited view into April Bever's life as a stay-at-home mom. In one of her posts on Reddit, she says, I was 15 when I got married in Texas in 1987. Parents had to sign a form, was not pregnant, still married to the same guy, and seven kids later. Not letting my daughter, but it worked for us. I lived in Oklahoma at the time. In Oklahoma, I could have if I had been pregnant. This could explain why the family was estranged from their extended family. In another post, she says, I have seven children, and we have always lived on one income and have never had any government assistance or needed it. We have a 4,700-square-foot house, two newer cars, and my kids do not do without. There are childless people that do not have this life. Life is about making good job or income choices and then making the best money choice based on your income. I would never give up having any of our children so I could have more money. They are amazing people and the world will benefit by having them in it. And nothing I could buy or invest in could compare to giving a person a chance to have life. She discussed their unconventional lifestyle once by asking, anyone else have midnight cleaning parties with their kids? 
I just finished deep cleaning four rooms with three kids because they did not want to go to bed yet. They will do anything to stay up. House looks great and ready for Christmas. She only once mentioned one of her children by name, and that was Crystal. A few years ago, my daughter was on Barbie designing a personal doll they were selling. She put her name Crystal and it told her it was a bad name. She was crying and showing it to her dad. I ended up going as high as the VP of the online division. He apologized and said it was because of a crystal meth block. She also got a customized Barbie with her name and a $100 gift card. She has kept this in the original box with a note that the VP designed it, just for her. She shed a sliver of light on her in-laws when she said, I cross-stitched a large 50th anniversary picture with my in-laws' names and dates. I ended up giving it to them early. My father-in-law passed away months before they could celebrate 50 years. I was glad they got to celebrate the anniversary early together. She was active on a random acts of kindness subreddit, and on one of these she said, I look forward all year just to see my kid's face on Christmas morning. My sons got me watching SOA, Sons of Anarchy, and Walking Dead. A good girl show is Heart of Dixie. April discussed homeschooling on Reddit. She told another user, We are doing everything online except for my first son did a mail course. They sent him the books and work in the mail, and he had to mail it back to the teachers to grade. It took a lot longer waiting on the mail and teachers than my second son, who had everything finished online quicker. The key is to make sure the school is an accredited high school or college, and that workplaces will accept that diploma. She also gives a little insight into their domestic life by saying, I had two boys first, then a girl, and then two more boys. She was always asked if she was the only girl and if she really wanted a sister. She was so thrilled when the last two were girls. Now brothers, I think she would like to strangle a couple of them sometimes. We homeschool, so they are together 24-7 and really do not fight with each other like I did with my brother and sister. About Christmas, she said, Favorite is Christmas. My parents actually were the kind that would give us IOUs for Christmas. So it has always been very important to me that our kids have the best Christmas possible every year. Thankfully, my husband understands and knows I am going to go overboard. But also Christmas brings everyone together, and there is so much you can do and share with others for days and weeks, even before it gets here. The most heartbreaking post she made was this one. I sit and cuddle my baby girl all night, and it makes everything else fade away. She was born last year at 23 weeks and had a 50-50 chance to make it. April had just recently created a nonprofit called Autumn Hope Incorporated. In a June 2015 Facebook post, she said this organization would help premature babies or ill children. Hopefully, the surviving sisters can discuss these memories of their mom, which paints a different picture of their mother than the brothers have. Okay, fan club members. As I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at True Crime Fan Club Pod, and of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email 
tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was written and researched by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check them out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com.